Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to another special Ukraine war report in episode 165. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. What's happening in Ukraine right now is worse than most could have imagined. And now is a time to stay vigilant. We are now facing two global powers, China and Russia, each with significant military capabilities, both who intend to fundamentally change the rules-based current global order. We are entering a world that is becoming more unstable and the potential for significant international conflict between great powers is increasing, not decreasing. That's Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, laying it out, saying that the risk of conflict between great powers is increasing, not decreasing. And anyone watching the news should be able to see that now. And for anyone who's listened to this show, what's happening in Ukraine is not worse than you could have imagined. You saw this coming. Ukraine remains under attack. Civilians are still dying. And Bucha, a suburb of Kiev, will go down in history as a site of atrocities, war crimes, and will likely be the first of what could be many places in Ukraine that reveal the scope and scale of Putin's war crimes. And the reality is, it can still get worse. Biana Goladriga, the brilliant global analyst at CNN, who joined us on episode 157 for the first of our Ukraine war reports, tweeted something very powerful this week. She said, very worried about timing here. The increased pro-war, pro-denazification rhetoric from Russian state media, urging the Kremlin to, quote, go all the way in Ukraine, comes as U.S. and NATO officials are publicly saying Russia is regrouping and may still attempt to go after Kyiv, as well as continued strikes on Odessa, Kharkiv, and Lviv. This isn't a coincidence. Putin is planning to hold his annual victory parade in Moscow on May 9th. He will likely want to have something big to show for Russians at home. Nothing so far in this war has gone to plan. And showcasing a major victory or grab is clearly what he wants to do. And with his military facing increased pressure to give him a win, I'm afraid we will see some ugly and violent days in the weeks ahead. This is the window for the West to really go big in punishment. Biana's right. This is the time. May 9th could be an even bigger time. We must do more to support Ukraine because the stakes have never been higher. Stakes are continuing to get higher. War crimes are now a reality. The threat of nukes continues to increase. And the brutality on the ground is being exposed. And there are so many elements to this story. And in this episode, we're going deeper again 
With another independent perspective, you won't get anywhere else. We're going to pull it apart from the eyes of an American investigative reporter who's inside Ukraine right now. He's chasing down stories. He's documenting truth. And he's going to continue to share the reality of what's happening in Ukraine with the United States and with the world in the critical weeks to come. He's a truth teller. He's a heroic reporter. And he's an American veteran. He's Seth Harp. Seth Harp is an investigative reporter, an Iraq veteran, and a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He's right now working on a story for Harper's, but he's written for The New Yorker, The Intercept, The New York Times at War, The Texas Observer, and Columbia's Journalism Review. Seth is from Texas, and Texas knows about floods. This song is, of course, Texas Flood, from Austin, Texas's own Stevie Ray Vaughan. And there's a flood of pain rolling across Ukraine right now. And that pain is flowing deep and hard. And it's likely to overflow into the rest of the world. It already has with millions of refugees who are surging all around the world. And that flood is going to continue. And to help us understand it, Seth is going to break it down. He was a sophomore at UT Austin when the Iraq war started and his Army Reserve unit got called up. He'll tell us more about how he went over as a truck driver and did a 15-month tour. The first piece he ever wrote for Rolling Stone was about an ambush that hit one of his own detachments. After college, he went to NYU Law School and spent five years practicing law. He was a corporate lawyer, then assistant AG at the Texas Attorney General's office. There were a lot of things he liked about the job, but he had a desire to write, and it led him to quit and go to Columbia Journalism School. He graduated in 2016 and started immediately writing for Rolling Stone. He went to Syria a few times. He went to Iraq. He went to Mexico on three or more occasions and developed a specialty covering the intersection of the military, armed conflict, and organized crime for Rolling Stone and others. Now, he's in Ukraine on assignment for Harper's and doing as much reporting as he can, gathering materials for what will be a number of stories. He joined us from inside Kiev, exhausted, but focused, focused on helping us all understand the flood. Seth is going to help us understand what it's like to be an investigative reporter in Ukraine right now. What's it like to witness war after being a warrior? And he's going to take us inside the radical far-right Azov Battalion, It's been a bit in the news, but they have neo-Nazi roots, and Seth spoke to their founder and got inside their unit to understand what they're all about, what they're facing, and why they could be critical in the days to come, especially in Mariupol. He's also got a blockbuster for us. He went inside the Ukraine Foreign Legion and basically believes it doesn't exist. His reporting has revealed that thousands of Americans and other Westerners are going to Ukraine but they're not being put into the fight. He'll share why. And he's also going to take us into a story he's been covering that I wanted him to join us to talk about. Why are so many soldiers dying at Fort Bragg in the United States? Dozens in the last two years, including some of our most elite special forces troops, 
murders, suicides, drug overdoses. What is happening in Fort Bragg? Seth is going to tell us. And we're going to talk about if Bucha is just the beginning. Easy is over, especially on the battlefields of Ukraine, and it's getting bloodier and bloodier by the day. The flood is rising for the Russians, for the Ukrainians, and for the world. Because the tide may have turned for the Ukrainians for now, but the tides are ebbing and flowing. And no matter how they ebb and flow, the water is rising, the blood is rising, and the flood is just starting. Wartime is here, not just for Ukraine, but for everyone in the world who cares about freedom. And now, more than any other time in our lifetime, now is a time for all of us to stay vigilant. That means understanding what's happening on the ground. That means understanding where the flood is now and how high the flood could get and how high those floodwaters could remain for decades to come. Welcome to the next chapter in the Ukraine war. Welcome to the rainy season. Welcome to the flood. Welcome to another Ukraine war report. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 165. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country, around the world, especially inside Ukraine and for everyone around the world tracking on Ukraine, we're continuing our unique uh, and deep focus on everything happening in the war. And I want to continue to bring you real, powerful, insightful, experienced voices. And we've got a real opportunity here that I'm grateful for uh, to speak to a man who's on the ground, uh, a, a real fantastic reporter, also kind of an international man of mystery, just a, a, a fascinating guy. Um, but the great and powerful Seth Harp joins us, Independent Americans. Welcome, Seth. Great to have you here. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. So I said uh, international man of mystery because, you, you know, you've traveled to many conflict zones around the world. You're an Iraq vet yourself. I want to get into that. Um, you're there now, and I'm grateful for you making the time to squeeze us in. Um, I want to start by asking you, Seth, the question I ask, I ask everybody. Where are you and how are you? I'm doing well. I'm in, in Kiev, uh, Ukraine. I'm a little bit sleep deprived and a little bit cold. But other than that, I'm doing well. So can you talk about uh, you grew up in Texas, right? Yeah, I'm from Texas. Awesome. And, Texas. and uh, you're there now doing an investigative work, investigative work for Harper's. But before um, you went to journalism school, you were in the Army. Can, can you explain, folks, what you did in the Army and when that was? Uh, definitely wasn't like a Navy SEAL, that's for sure. Green Beret, nothing like that. I was just in the Army Reserves when I was in college. I got called up uh, for a tour in Iraq from 03 to 05. And uh, I was basically just a truck driver that got shot at. Um, but I was really young at that time, like 19. So it was a pretty formative experience. And ever since then, I've reported on you know, either the military or armed conflict or organized crime things of that nature at that, at that intersection, I would say. And you've been Colombia, Syria, Iraq, all kinds of other places. Um, can you give me, you've been, tell us how long you've been there and, and why you wanted to go. 
I've been in Kiev, or excuse me, I've been in Ukraine since um, maybe March 15th, I think. No, no, excuse me, March 18th. Uh, why I wanted to go? Well, it's a huge, huge event. Um, a war of this scale in Europe is something that hasn't been seen for a while. I uh, definitely can't say I was prepared for it. Not an expert on Eastern Europe, not an expert on Russia by any means. Um, but I do have a lot of experience working in combat zones as a reporter, so um, I couldn't sit it out. So you get the assignment or you, you, you arrange the assignment, you go in to Kiev really at the start of this, you've been there now for what's, I think we're into like our 41st day of, of the war. We talked to Quan Nguyen, who was in Kiev. We talked to Matt Gallagher when he had just left, um, mm-hmm. uh, Lviv, you know, mm-hmm. I, part of why I want to talk to you is because you have this unique perspective. You've been on all sides of this. You've been a 19 year old in combat and now you're covering 19 year olds in combat on the mm-hmm. Ukrainian, on the Russian side. Can you just mm-hmm. give me, you know, your impressions of, of what you're seeing now? Like we see the headlines, we see the tweets. There's been some really great reporting from Ukrainian mm-hmm. independent reporters, especially, but set, set, set up what you're seeing and maybe how you'd initially compare it to some of the other places you've been. Right at this moment, I'm in a hotel in downtown Kiev and the mood uh, is a lot better than it has been for the past, uh, I would say week or few weeks. Um, it's now pretty clear or definite that the Russians have fallen back from the suburbs of Kiev. So just on like a personal safety level, it feels a lot better. There's a lot less shelling, uh, audible, um, on the outskirts of the city. And when I first arrived here, it was pretty bleak. I mean, the the checkpoints were really hardcore. I mean, just every single, uh, every hundred meters, you have to go through a, a really fortified checkpoint where they're checking you know, there's a lot of Russian spies in the city, a lot of saboteurs. So they're checking. It doesn't matter if you're with territorial defense. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. They're looking at not just your ID, but like every page of your passport to make sure there's no Russian stamps in there. Um, and th- that's kind of alleviated uh, in the last few days um, as the territorial defense and the Ukrainian army have ventured farther out into the suburbs and recaptured a lot of these cities that the Russians have taken in their initial assault on Kiev. So um, among the people, like there's, I think there's a really high sense of morale uh, among the armed forces as well. Um, so things are, you know, at least in the city of Kiev, the things are, things are looking up for the moment. I don't know how much you saw of the Russians in Syria or in other places. Um, but can you, can you give us your assessment? You've been also outside the city. I see on your social, you've been going out and talking to people and I want to dig deeper into that. Um, but you, can you kind of compare maybe the scope of what you've seen, you know, you were in Iraq in the early days, you were in Syria. Can you compare the scope of what you're seeing in, in Ukraine so far to any, uh, you know, other places you've been, Seth? The only thing I think is comparable is the, is the uh, 2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States. Um, I think, and I think that's a really good comparison in terms of like the scale um, and, you know, the composition of the military units and everything that's going on. Um, it, Syria is a little bit different. You know, I didn't get into Syria until like 2016. Um, there, I did see, or was in a position to observe parts of the Russian intervention there. Um, you know, one thing I might note is that the, the Russians really intervened in a successful way in Syria, uh, prop to prop up the Assad regime at a time when it seemed like the regime could fall. Um, they, they were extremely brutal in their tactics, especially the bombing of Aleppo was probably the worst thing I saw in Syria. And, um, we saw a lot of images of like Russian special forces uh, operating in Syria and they looked highly competent and all that, I think, um, fed into the perception of Russian military uh, confidence and might that is now sort of being punctured as we see that they, they were not, they launched this full scale assault on Kiev. It was really shocking. 
U.S. intelligence agencies have predicted it, but there's a lot of skepticism about those claims. You know, I personally was skeptical about it. Um, and to see them attempt that and fail at it is really momentous. I think that the battle uh, to defend Kiev, the defense of Kiev will be remembered for a long time uh, as a historic underdog victory. And, you know, it's a it's a classic illustration of an old military principle, which is that it's a lot easier to defend a place than to attack. Mm. So you said that you were a truck driver, you know, during the invasion of Iraq, right? You were, <laughs> you know, a lowly, you know, enlisted 19 year old. Now you're seeing the other side of it. You're seeing Russians like in, in, in pretty much a similar role, like conscripts, young soldiers who are driving trucks and getting blown up. Can you talk about, you know, your social media feed has been really insightful for me, especially because of your personal vantage point and your personal experience. Can you talk about what you're seeing out there and, and, and what you think the American public maybe isn't seeing or appreciating? Uh you know, your guest, Chris Fussell, I'm not saying that right, Fussell, yep. Fussell. He he made a great point. You guys are having a great discussion on your last episode about you know making a comparison between javelins and in-laws and anti-tank missiles and IEDs in the Iraq war. I think that's a really valid comparison. Um, during the Iraq war, there wasn't a lot you could do about IEDs. They killed a lot of U.S. soldiers. Um, Iranian intelligence, um, I think, basically got everything they wanted out of that conflict um, and by, by providing shape charges and more sophisticated IEDs to the Iraqi insurgency than they otherwise would have been able to devise on their own. Um, and they blew up a lot of shit. They blew up and they, they killed a lot of U.S. soldiers. And um, the U.S. is pretty powerless to, to, do, to do much about it. I mean, they tried things like jamming, you know, the, the signals of them or whatever, but they, we were pretty exposed. And in the end, you know, the U.S. Uh, forces ended up just falling back into their bases and couldn't really venture out into the country. And that's the situation as the conflict uh, wound down into what was widely perceived as U.S. loss. And I think that you're seeing a lot of the same uh, dynamic here, not with IEDs, but with these javelins and in-laws. And because of outdated Russian reliance on um, armor formations, uh, especially in like suburban areas that they're driving in where there's a lot of cover for, for infantry um, and scout patrols that are armed with these things. I read that the U.S. had given about a third or excuse me, half of the whole supply of javelins to, to the Ukrainians. I don't know how many that is, but probably a lot. Um, and they are just absolutely wrecking shit with that. I mean, I was out in a suburb of Kiev the other day called uh, Zabuchigia. I'm sorry that the pronunciation is Ukrainian. It's very difficult language, but Zabuchigia, I think, is the name of it. Very close to Irpin, with a stone's throw from Irpin. And um, on a stretch of the road there, we saw 13 tanks and APCs all bunched up, like within a quarter mile stretch, they had all been totally destroyed. And all of them I noticed had had their turrets like popped off, like the lids were popped off and they were like laying a distance away. So I don't know what happened there. The Ukrainians are very tightly controlled information, something else we could talk about. But um, yeah, it looked to me like the, the destruction that would be caused by in-laws, like they, like they just got snuck up on. But why there were so many tanks and APCs in that small area and why they were so exposed and bunched up, it's just disastrous tactics. Hmm. Um, and they were not even able, I mean, they weren't able to evacuate all of their dead. I mean, we saw like dead Russian soldiers laying all over the place. It was pretty gruesome. And um, so, yeah, I think that's exposed a huge vulnerability, you know, in, in the Russians. So, you know, that, that's one point of comparison that I can draw. Is there any way for you, Seth, to evaluate not just the strategic and tactical impact, but the morale impact? I think this is really something I pulled apart a bit with Seth and, and with, uh, with with Fussell, and, and I think I want to pull apart with you, Seth. Um, 
you know, ID scared the shit out of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and for folks that don't know, you know, they, they could be made with a garage door opener and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and some explosive uh, artillery shells or anything. And then they, they evolved to these penetrating rounds that came in from Iran, but they were, they scared folks, right? It was, you were more likely to die from an IED than pretty much anything else, right? It was more dangerous to drive than to fly. Is there any way for you to gauge? I don't know if you've talked to any captured Russians or even talking to Ukrainian soldiers. Um, I, you know, I've been in the last episode, I talked about St. Javelin. Um, mm, I feel mm. like the American public isn't fully appreciating how scary these things are for someone yeah. who's a 19 year old tanker who's rolling through a convoy and just watches the tank in front of him and behind him get incinerated. Um, Do you have any sense for that and and just how much it's impacting Russian morale? Mm, I can only imagine that it's that it's this bad for the morale. Um, We've heard reports of Russian soldiers deserting. Sometimes the Ministry of Defense will parade out some captives and journalists can talk to them, but there's really not much that can be gleaned there. The the Russians are kind of a black box of what exactly they're thinking. I can tell you that the that the Ukrainians, everyday Ukrainians, military uh, militia guys, because everyone here is in one way or the other, like in the military now, um, uh, if not in a military capacity and some kind of volunteer capacity, the society is very mobilized. Um, and they're, they're very feeling very confident. Um, and I think that the javelins, like you said, St. Javelin, that's what they're all talking about. Everyone loves in-laws. I think more, so they talk more about in-laws, um, than javelins. Um, and also there's, there's these drones that they have from Turkey called, uh, Bakhtayar or something. Um, that are very, have been proven very effective. So I think it's been, you know, very good for for their morale for for sure. Can you talk about um, over the course of the month, Seth? You know, wh- what is your day to day like? You're going is you're kind of going out and looking for stories. Are you working with stringers? How do you cover this right now? Where you know, from the outside, it may it may seem like there are journalists everywhere, uh, and maybe that's because everybody has a cell phone right now. But how does how does a guy like you come into a place like this and and cover this? Um, well, the border's open. It's a lot easier to get into Ukraine than it was to get into Syria. Um, you know, it kind of leads me to a point I was making a moment ago that information is very tightly controlled. I don't think we've seen any independent reporting from the front lines where they're actually fighting. You see a lot of videos that are, that are, that are created by soldiers that are posted by soldiers, but even those uh, I think are monitored, um, by the SBU, by military intelligence that, um, to a way that we're not really familiar with coming from a U.S. military perspective. Uh, you know, the military intelligence here really is um, superior to, to the military. I don't know exactly how it works bureaucratically, but they definitely have veto power over like mm. what gets out. Um, I was just talking to the commander of the Jor- Georgian Foreign Legion the other day, Mamuka Mamulashvili, and, you know, he was <laughs> complaining about how their the SVU keeps editing his TikTok videos. <laughs> really? <laughs> only, only letting him publish, like, short clips of it. Um so, and, um, a lot of it is coming through centralized channels. A lot of the reporting is coming through centralized channels. Like you get on a, you have to get accredited with the, with the military and then they'll provide you they encourage you to stay in their hotels and then they'll provide you with fixers and translators. I've kind of done independently. I stay in my own hotel, get my own translators, my own fixers. Um, but nevertheless, I think there's a, there's a high degree of centralization of information. That's where a lot of the reporting is coming from. And, you know, a lot of the reporting I've done has been kind of like on the side and, you know, to answer your question, how's it done? I don't know. You just meet one guy and it leads to another, to another, to another. And, you know, my basic principle is just never say no to an interview. 
Hmm. Um, and it oftentimes, you know, it, it pays off and they'll mention that someone else that they know, you can talk to this other person they'll talk to you. And so you just string one connection, uh, to another and, and, and keep going. I'm really glad you, you, you boiled that down, Seth, because I, I don't think, uh, maybe the average social media user, or the average civilian appreciates how good the Ukrainians have been at the messaging control. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, we're just instinctively retweeting things. We don't really know where they're coming from. You think it's a government site or it's an independent Ukrainian journalist and it has this life. Right. And and, and I think it's been masterful in the way the Ukrainian uh, government has centralized their communications and they're winning the messaging war maybe even more than they're, they're winning the tactical war on the ground. And it's through that control, right? And at the same time, the American military is not allowing guys like you to embed with our forces that are in NATO. And you're, you know, it, it sounds like they're not even really letting American journalists truly embed. Like you get to set up interviews, you get this stuff fed to you, but I haven't seen too many independent American journalists who are just roaming around with, with Ukrainian units on the front lines, right? No, you can't do that. Yeah. They won't allow that. Yeah. I don't know what you would see if you could embed with, in, in bed with the um, 82nd Airborne guys over in uh, Poland. I mean, they're not really, they're just kind of sitting around. Yeah. 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 But I think, for, I think the question has been, you know, shouldn't we be able to, right? Like I think, and, and that, you know, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, other places where it seemed like that was allowed. Um, and I think especially for, you know, a guy like you or someone like Matt that has that, Matt Gallagher that has that perspective, I think it could be so insightful. Yeah, maybe they're sitting around, but I, I also think that, you know, our, their families have a right to know if that's what they're doing. They're just sitting around, mm -hmm. right? Um, can yeah, you- No, totally agree. Can yeah. you talk about, you know, your, your, your writing is really powerful because, you know, it has um, so much detail and, and humanity to it. What's this like for you personally, man? Like we're talking, you know, before we started, I asked you how many jewels you're smoking. When I was in Iraq, I smoked a pack a day, right? And my guys used to mm. say you could tell how intense it was going to be by how many cigarettes I smoked. Can you yeah. talk about, you know, a guy like you, you're, you're an investigative journalist now with Harper's, but you've written for Rolling Stone and others. Um, do you have any insurance, like life insurance? If you get killed over there, if you get wounded over there, um, what, what happens to a guy like you? Because I really think that that part of it is underreported too. Uh, now you're making me paranoid. I don't have any life insurance. I've never <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> um, it, I, I, like it's, it's not, it's not a healthy lifestyle. That's for sure. It's not safe. Uh, I mean, journalists have gotten killed like once a week since I've been here. Um, sadly, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, but you're so busy, you know, doing reporting that I really don't think about it. Like, that's the main thing. I'm just constantly busy all day. Um, just running from one place to another and interviewing people. There's a lot of stuff to be done. There's a lot of stuff to report on. You got to say no to a lot of things, unfortunately. Um, is that the food supply is not great. Like all the stores in Kiev are completely closed. Oh, well, there's a few grocery stores that are open. So I've been eating just like salami and pretzels and, and, you know, oranges and apples when I can get them. Um, but you know, like losing weight yeah, definitely vaping too much and always relapse every time I come to a war zone. I think so. I appreciate you sharing that because I can, you know, I think the heart in what you're doing comes through. And I honestly think that's part of what America is, is tuning out too much is, is it's easy to gloss over and, and forget the humanity of this. And I think the Ukrainians are trying to scream out for that. And unfortunately, Americans sometimes need to hear it through American eyes or American voices to be able to fully appreciate it. Um, can you talk about, um, you, you mentioned you were out with the Azov unit recently. Can you talk about 
um, any any of the the Ukrainian forces you've come into contact with, and just your personal uh, impressions of them. So because you can't talk to, you can talk to territorial defense, which uh, to be clear to to your listeners is uh, like the militia that's been created um, in a very short time uh, period uh, with conscription and a lot of voluntary enlistment as well. Uh, The real Ukrainian army, the, you know, like the 200,000 or so guys that they had before this started, you really can't talk to those guys. You can't photograph them. I mean, uh, twice uh, I've had my phone seized and and photos deleted because I took pictures of, uh, you know, Ukrainian soldiers or the checkpoints. So uh, as a result of that, I've um, been reporting on more independent militias uh, or units because they're, they're now all incorporated within the structure of the armed forces. Um, like the Georgian foreign legion that I mentioned, cause that commander, he's has the autonomy to, to talk to me. And, uh, yeah, this morning I interviewed the, the founder of the Azov battalion, um, Andrew Beletsky at their base in Kiev, which was really, inter- a really interesting interview. Um, the Azov battalion is a sensitive subject because they're so stigmatized in, in the West. Um, they've been described roundly as a, as a neo-Nazi organization as a far-right organization, which kind of puts um, the Western backers of this war in an uncomfortable position uh, when they're basically rooting for the Ukrainians because this because Azov is front and center. They're some of the most hardcore soldiers out here, high degree of discipline. Uh, they've been incorporated into the military as a special operations um, uh, unit, not just you know regular infantry because of their enhanced uh, capabilities, high degree of morale, lots of training, lots of equipment. Uh, they look sharp, you know, they look squared away. They, they talk, uh, you know, like, so they have a very strong military bearing when you talk mm-hmm. to these guys. Um, so what can I say about Azov? I think the most important thing to, to know about them is, um, well, first of all, about the, like the neo-Nazi things, totally fair. I mean, they're, they are a radical right-wing organization. That's the reporting is out there. No one, I don't think anybody denies that, you know, at their base that I went to today, they have, you know, the, it's it's like in an abandoned Soviet factory on the outskirts of Kiev. Um, they're manufacturing like uh, hedgehogs, like those uh, barriers um, mm-hmm. that look like they look like big uh, caltrops. They're like they're like sawing lumber to make to like sawing tree trunks to make lumber. They're manufacturing like huge stacks of Molotov cocktails out there. And um, you could walk into the big, you know, empty, uh, like freezing cold, like warehouse that they're or factory that they've commandeered as their as their headquarters. And there's this huge flag hanging in the in the main hall, which is the like the wolf's angle, which looks just like the the SS symbol. Um, there's like black sun decorations all over the place, like a pagan symbol that's affiliated that's uh, associated with the Nazis. Um, some of that is, I think, taken a little bit out of context because of the complicated history between Ukraine, Germany, and uh, Russia. So the the appropriation of Nazi symbols and Nazi um, yeah Nazi symbols and regalia in some ways that's like the audience towards that is the audience of that is Russia. They're kind of trolling them in a way mm. um, because obviously the Russians have a big thing with the being anti-Nazi and they're the great. You know, Russia's whole national identity is built on their defeat of the Nazis in World War II. So for Azov to appropriate that, in a way, it's kind of trolling them. Um, it's also like those type of symbols, like those pagan symbols are a lot more, um, I would say, appropriate or accepted here in Eastern Europe. Uh, so all that being said, they are a white supremacist organization. I mean, so there was a huge thing that when I was leaving the base, I noticed 
like right on this wooden um, like wall as we're leaving it, it just says white power straight up. So mm-hmm. like make no bones about it. Like that's what Azov is. Um, and Andrew Bielewski is on the record with a lot of this stuff. They're trying to clean up their image a little bit now because they've been designated as a terrorist organization by the State Department. Um, and they're not eligible to receive um, military aid from the United States. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that's the that's just the reality of who they are and what they're doing right now. I think because of that, it hasn't really been foregrounded. The fact that Azov is the main force in Mariupol right now. Yeah. Is that, is that the re- big key here? Because, you know, they yeah. are. I don't know. It, like it, it would be maybe this is a bad comparison, but if, if there was an invasion and, and Texas, you know, was getting clobbered, it's like the Texas National Guard. I don't know. It's, it's the home team. Right. For Mary Opal here. Um, and I don't mean to draw a comparison between the two, but they're the home, they're the home team, right. For Mary Opal. And, the, and they're absolutely critical here in the, in the defense or, or retaking of Mary Opal. I think Azov is a lot more hardcore than the Texas National Guard. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that's their home turf, yeah, right? It's Mariupol? Their home turf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's on the Sea yeah. of Azov. Yeah. Which is what they take their name from. But here's the point that I'm building to. Azov is on the point of being destroyed. Like they're going to die. They may very well die to a man in Azov. In, in Mariupol, they're compli- mm. they're completely surrounded. Bolesky told me that they're that there's no way for them to get aid to them at all. That their water supplies are dwindling, and he said that because of their ethos, they were going to fight to the death. Like they're not going to surrender. So this as this Azov battalion that has been in the media and has been talked about so much, they're on the verge of being killed, like to a man, as I said. Um, there's a little bit of misreporting around this because Azov guys, Azov commanders, including Bolesky. Um, who, who left uh, his military post to, to be a politician uh, some time back and is now back in a military position with Azov, to be clear. Um, they are some veterans of Azov are now forming new units around Kiev. Like when I went to their base, they had recruits everywhere. They're like signing people up. So and I asked him, well, what do you call that? Because he was criticizing um, some U.S. outlets for calling uh, some units like some. There's some units in the in the area of Bucha um, that was just liberated there being called Azov. It's actually different. It's not the original Azov. They're what they call Azov territorial defense. So um, they're on the verge of being destroyed completely and they're rebuilding themselves kind of from scratch here, here in Kiev. In that rebuilding, Seth, are they, are they rebranding too, or are they still embracing, you know, the, the, the neo-Nazi elements and, and the branding? And when you talk to uh, Belinsky, did he feel like they were getting uh, less support militarily because of this uh, part of their identity and that some are, you know, if they if they weren't the Azov um, battalion, that they might get more outside military support and international support? In that's, absolute, that's absolutely the case. He's, he was quite, you know, I would say bitter that they haven't had it. They haven't been able to be directly supplied with javelins and in-laws. Maybe that has something to do with uh, the difficulty they've had in Mario. I don't know. That'd be a tactical question, but um, yeah, he, he cert- certainly that has that has hamstrung them. Um, and you know what can you say about it? The situation it is what they is that it is what it is. They are who they are, and that's why they didn't get support. Um, and the Russians are attacking Mariupol not because their primary objective is to supposedly denazify Ukraine. That's just propaganda, um, but because they want that city, they want that land bridge from Russia to, to Crimea. I think this is a fascinating part of this and, and a really interesting point too, for a propaganda value standpoint for Putin, as this continues 
to unfold because it looks like he may try to make Mariupol his, you know, his his salvaging victory. And if you've got the Azov battalion in there, it gives him at least the ingredients to be able to tell the story differently to his own people. And I think it's it's a really important story that you're covering that we have to watch, especially as we wrestle with extremism back here in the U.S. Let me ask you this, Seth. Um, what is what, what do you feel like, you know, you're obviously there and, and you're not seeing all of the media back here in the U.S., but you're, you know, you grew up in, in Texas, like the average folks back in Texas, what do you feel like they're missing that you're seeing that you can uniquely communicate to folks who, who are, who are tracking on this? Um, you know, so immersed in it, it's hard to know what exactly folks back home are seeing. I mean, what, what's like the mainstream like narrative that people are taking away from the situation right now? I don't know if there is one, maybe, maybe another way to, to, to ask you Seth, cause I know it's a hard question is what do you think is most important? What do you think is is most important about what you're seeing um, and having the really important context of the other places you've been? What do you what do you think is most important right now? I'm glad to see one country that invades another sovereign country uh, face plant uh, and look really weak as a result of it. It, you know, it encourages or discourages other countries from doing this kind of thing because. What Ukraine has shown is the same lesson that we learned in the Iraq war, which is that when a nuclear armed state invades another country, there's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, no one could do anything about the U.S., international opposition to the Iraq invasion. Um, and no one can do anything about Russia because, you know, as much as people might like to, to you know, talk about NATO intervention, that kind of thing. I think the people that are really in power in the United States, they understand the stakes that that's just not acceptable. You just can't do that. Um, and so for Russia to win here would have been a really bad thing for, you know, the future of the 21st century. And it's good to see that, um, that they're basically, I mean, they have a lot of time and they have, uh, they have, a, they can raise a lot more manpower. They can do conscription. They have a lot of options at this point, but the initial phase of this is, has led to, a, a, I would say, describe it as a Russian, uh, failure. Um, and so that's, that's really good. I'm, I'm glad to see that, that happen. I think I think face plants a really good way of, of putting it. Um, I know you, you do a lot of reporting and, and I can't have you on and not ask you about something you've been, I think, single handedly covering back here in the U.S. We mentioned the 82nd Airborne. Um, you've you've covered a, a number of suicides and deaths at Fort Bragg, where the 82nd Airborne is from. Um, can I just ask you what the fuck is going on at Fort Bragg? And based off your reporting, what can you help folks understand about what's happening back here at Fort Bragg? Um, it's a really uh, ugly situation there, really um, depressing situation. Uh, as I reported, 97 soldiers died, at least 97 soldiers died in 2020 and 2021 at Fort Bragg. Over that same time period, uh, just four died overseas. The Press officers at Fort Bragg will straight up lie about the number of, uh, of soldiers who have died there. They lied to me in writing. Um, I have proof of that. A Washington Post reporter recently got in touch with me. Kind of, I think he was kind of like trying to like low key fact check me. Like he didn't believe my reporting. And the, the press officers had told him that the number was only 70, which would still be a really high number, far more than like at Fort Bragg. They got the whole chain of command relieved over 28 deaths there in 2020. Um, and, you know, I, I showed him that I had like the FOIA to prove it. Like I FOIAed all of their uh, casualty reports um, for 2021. I think the number might actually be higher than, nine, than 97 because I'm still relying on the on Fort Bragg for the 2020 number. 
Uh, we don't know how many soldiers have died in 2022 in the first uh, three months of, of this year. And the thing to know about Fort Bragg, for your listeners who don't already know this, is it's the home of the Army's most elite uh, divisions, most elite units. It's the home of the Special Forces. Uh, it's the home of the, the whole Airborne Corps. It's the home of JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, Delta Force. And a lot of these units are involved in what's going on. We've had, in little more than a year, two Delta Force uh, soldiers just turn up dead. One of them. Uh, as a result of a firefight that like no one has been able to explain that took place in the woods outside of Fort Bragg is very mysterious. And I've had sources tell me that that soldier, William Levine, um, was working for a drug cartel, uh, and was, uh, and was involved in trafficking drugs. And uh, I've also heard some, this is rumor, this is not confirmed, but a lot of people that know about this community that, that knew William Levine personally, uh, speculate without offering proof uh, that he may have been killed by by members of that that community um, because he was a major liability and had been going around running doing crazy. Anyway, I don't want to get off on too much on the story. No, this is actually really part of your your reporting, and I know you had a piece in Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. It was last year, and you've you've been tweeting about this and writing about this and staying on it, which I think is really really important. And and it's it's another reason why I think you know combat veteran reporters are so vital because you can cut through the bullshit in a way that somebody that hasn't been inside may be able to, but just, are you able to draw any conclusions at this point, Seth, because we've got suicides, we've got homicides, we've got drug use. Is this just the wreckage of 20 years of grinding out the most elite parts of our entire military? Is this just everything coming apart at the seams? A hundred percent. That's what it is. You name the factors, suicide, soldier on soldier murders, uh, drug trafficking and overdose deaths, which the main thing that the military is concealing is that a ton of these soldiers have died from overdose deaths. A lot of, by the way, on social media, a lot of people are like speculating when I post stuff like this, oh, it's like the vaccine or, or stuff like that. The soldiers are falling out because it's, that's nonsense. It's nothing like that. It's, it's overdose deaths uh, from fentanyl in particular. A lot of drugs because cocaine use is really prevalent in the special forces. Um, and uh, a lot of coke now is cut with fentanyl. And uh, another big thing is steroid abuse. So the, uh, well, I don't want to malign the man, uh, who, the Delta Force major who just was recently discovered slumped over the wheel of his car. And like the army can't say how he died, except that he suffered a heart attack at age 38. Again, a major in Delta Force. That's the most elite military unit in the United States, um, a member of JSOC. So, and I don't know what happened with him, but he's the third soldier to just drop dead from a heart attack. Um, and I know that um, steroid, uh, steroid abuse and steroid trafficking, there's a soldier on uh, trial right now at Fort Bragg, a special forces soldier for importing steroids from overseas. Um, and a, a, a side effect of steroid abuse, and steroid use is heart problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, how do you, so you can die at a very young age from heart problems if, you, if you're using a lot of steroids. So, you know, it's it's all related in one way or another, or most of it is related in one way or another to, to drug use and, and mental illness. And I think that that's um, not a problem that's confined to the military or just to the special forces, but to, sadly to the U.S. society as a whole. We've seen shocking rises in overdose deaths, especially from fentanyl. Fentanyl kill under the age of uh, 45, adults between the age of 18 and 45 are like three times more likely to die from fentanyl overdose than, than um, covid um, and fentanyl overdose is the leading cause of death for people under age 45 in the United States, mm-hmm. which let that sink in for a moment. So and we haven't even gotten, 
and we haven't even gotten to child abuse and marital problems and all the other wreckage. I think it's a really important story because I, I don't think the country has fully come to grips with the cost of our, you know, forever wars, 20 years of war. And and now these are the same guys that may be in Ukraine now, definitely in the surrounding region on standby. We talked about that with, with Chris Fussell last week about the types of missions they could be asked to do, you know, if this overflow happens in Ukraine and maybe even if it doesn't, right, we won't know till years from now how involved they were or weren't in places like Syria and even on the ground now in Ukraine. But I think it's really important reporting, Seth. I'm glad you're doing it. I told you before we, we hit record, uh, I'm glad you're there which is a hard thing to say because you're in such a shitty place, but I'm glad you're there because you have this unique perspective and you're such a talented uh, journalist and you got heart and that comes through in a way that I think is really, really important when you're covering stories like this and, and perspective. So maybe let me ask you, man, um, this is a tough question, but having been to all these places, having been through so much and now you're there now, any, any, any reflections on, um, you know, and I don't want to say on life, but like, what what are you learning about the bigger picture of the world? Um, when when it can feel so overflowing and it can feel like there's so much shit happening, you're still out there doing good work and making a difference. You know, you used to be a lawyer and you transitioned and went to become a journalist. And in my view, you're a hero because you're doing the work that we need. So many of these journalists are doing the work we need. What What are your big takeaways, man? If you can even start to process it yet. You know, one thing it's really concerning because I was thinking this the other day, like it's 2022 in three years, it'll we'll have be one quarter done with the century. Um, and, you know, that it's my whole adult life. Uh, we have seen a lot of armed conflict and a kind of breakdown, I would say, in um, not that the 20, not that the 20th century wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't riven by war. But I guess towards the 1990s and early 2000s, it seemed it didn't seem to things didn't seem to quite point in this direction of so much armed conflict and uh, and refugee crises, especially is a, is a big part of it. And the one th- pattern that I've observed everywhere is that wars don't end anymore. And I don't know exactly why that is. The Iraq war never really ended. I mean, even if you're just defining it as U.S. involvement, there's still U.S. special operators all over Iraq. Uh, I wouldn't say all over, but they're, you know, they're in the north, they're, they're in Anbar, they're on the Tamp border crossing. Uh, and the, a lot of the militias in Iraq are still involved in fighting Iran's in Iraq. It's just this, the country fell apart and never got put back together. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a failed state, frozen conflict. And so is Syria. It's all the same things in Syria. That war never ended. And it looks like it's just going to be frozen forever the way it condition currently exists now. Another war I've done a lot of reporting on is the drug war in Mexico, um, which really popped off, you know, around the same time as the Iraq war or a few years later, 2008, 2010. Um, And that conflict, you know, got a lot of attention in the first few years. And it it also never really ended. It just keeps getting worse. Um, And, you know, my fear is that the Ukraine war will be the same pattern, be the same dynamic, like, the Russians will fail in their attempt to take Kiev, but they'll, they'll, they'll continue in the Donbass, they'll continue in Crimea, and the country will just be basically stuck in this in this state of like perpetual frozen war. Other countries where we see that are, are Yemen, Libya, Somalia. I mean, the list just goes on. And I don't know why it is that exactly that wars don't conclude with treaties anymore and where like we just can rebuild. I wish we could find some way to to have wars when they're over to actually be over 
um, instead of just sort of ending in these stalemates that we see. And I hope that at least maybe in Ukraine, there can be some kind of high level political um, you know, reconciliation that allows for rebuilding to take place and for people to get on with their lives. I thank you for that, Seth. I think it, especially when you consider the generation like you and so many others that only know war, right? That only know post 9-11 and beyond. I think it's a really important way to bring it all back to center. Tell us about uh, your reporting on uh, the Ukrainian Foreign Legion, if you will. Uh, we've had, you know, Gallagher was on. We had Quan Nguyen on. There are a lot of folks that are there, on their way there, going there. You've been digging into this. What, what are your what are your what are your, what are your insights, man? Well, I talked to Matt, a great guy. He's actually doing something a little bit different, which is training the Ukrainian civilians. Right. Um, and but as far as the Ukrainian Foreign Legion, which they announced so much fanfare at the beginning, claimed that they had twenty thousand volunteers. Uh, I'm sorry to report that it doesn't exist. Um, I've been in search of the Ukrainian Foreign Legion since I got here. There's been a million pieces on them, but they're just interviewing guys who are knocking around Warsaw or, or Lviv. Um, and who are trying to join up, but are finding themselves frustrated in those efforts. Um, the, the Ukrainians initially said anyone was welcome to come over, whether you have combat experience or want to gain it quickly backtracked on that. When a lot of people without any sort of experience showed up and they now are saying only people with combat experience, there was that missile strike on the Yavori base, which really demoralized the, the foreign legion, uh, or the foreign legion volunteers. And I, I guess another third, about another third of them deserted after that, or didn't Zerks never joined up, but just left. The remainder who are here are basically being warehoused in, um, you know, like safe houses around Kiev, other places. The Ukrainians are stringing them along with promises of weapons, promises of, um, you know, body armor, ammunition, but they're not getting any of it. They say it's because they don't have any. That's actually not true. The Ukrainians have plenty of rifles uh, and they have plenty of ammunition. I got that straight from the inspector general of the Ukrainian armed forces. So why they're not giving them weapons, I think is pretty easy to guess why. I mean, they just don't have the capacity to um, organize uh, like a battalion of foreigners um, because there's the language problem. There's the command and control problem. There's the vetting problem. Like, how do you know these guys aren't Russian spies? Probably a lot of them are Russian spies. That's probably how they figured out exactly where the Yavori base was and and like just dumped a bunch of cruise missiles on top of it. so what's your message line. for guys or gals who are thinking about coming over, you know, thinking they're going to be, you know, John Wayne on the, on the front line of, of this fight. If you must come over here, volunteer in a humanitarian capacity or in a medical capacity, there is no Kalashnikov waiting for you. There's no body armor waiting for you. You will not be deployed. Um, you may be stuck in a, in a safe house and they may tell you that you're going to, but it's not going to happen. You know, I was at the front. I talked to soldiers who were there, Ukrainian soldiers who had just liberated uh, uh, suburbs of Kiev. Have you seen any Americans around here? Have you seen foreigners taking place in the fight? No. no. Except for a very small number of special forces, ex-special operations soldiers, um, who I'm not sure exactly their background or how they got here. Maybe they were part of the special operations efforts before February that were taking place that we know of in, in Ukraine. Uh, and maybe this, I've heard of one guy who's a, who's a Green Beret who, ha, who was a Ukrainian-American, heard tell of this guy. The, there are a very few number of highly trained, specialized, um, freelance, ex-soft guys who are taking place in the fight, but their numbers are very, very low. The, the Ukrainian Foreign Legion does not exist. Mm. 
That's that's big stuff, man. So I, I hope we'll continue to um, get your reporting on that um, because it, it does feel like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many reporters I've had reach out to me and say, hey, can you put me in touch with a couple of vets who are over there? I'm like, you know, I don't know any right now. And if I did, they're probably not going to fucking talk to you, right? If, if they're really elite and they're really specialized, they're not going to talk to me. They're not going to talk to you. They're not going to talk to the reporter who emails me who I've never met before. So I think it's a really important story. And I'm glad you're you're tracking on it, Seth. Thank you. I hope you can stick around for a couple of quick fire questions for our Patreon members who help us keep this show going. But um, on behalf of all of us, I just want to thank you for being out there, for telling the stories. Uh, We're going to continue to share all your writing. Um, What you're doing is is courageous and important and a a true public service, you know, to the U.S., but but to the world. So thank you for all you're doing out there, man. Uh, And thank you for for bringing the truth. Uh, And when you get back, uh, I owe you a couple of drinks and uh, maybe I'll, I'll even buy you a jewel, man. Whatever nah, you need. When you, when you when you get back, I'll, I'll get you a jewel or two, man. <laughs> I'm sure I'll need a new replacement. Thanks very much for saying so, Paul. I really appreciate your kind words, and thanks very much for having me on. You got it, brother. Stay vigilant. Seth is out there. As you hear this, he's out there now, and you could hear it in his voice. He's exhausted, but he's focused and he's motivated and he's telling the stories that need to be told. That's what the best journalists do, just like Brent Renaud and just like so many others who have been killed, who have been wounded and who are in danger right now. Be sure to follow Seth on social media at Seth Harp ESQ. That's Seth Harp Esquire. Read everything he writes. Keep an eye on this guy and support him any way that you can. He's another true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there, even when the waters are the highest, whether it's in Ukraine, at Fort Bragg, or here at home as we face the next phase of the pandemic. And we're going to continue to highlight the helpers and celebrate the helpers. So check out the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter and share yours. And when you're on social, you can also guess the guest every Wednesday night and go to independentamericans.us. If you haven't, go to our website and check it out. Check out the video of me and Seth. You can see his face. You can see what he looks like. You can see the pain and the processing in his face and in his voice. This is one of those examples of an interview I think you really need to see in addition to hear to get the full perspective. So go to independentamericans.us. You can see our conversation there and every conversation we've done since we started our Ukraine war reports back in 157 with Bianca Golodriga, who I mentioned earlier. We're going to continue to keep the focus on Ukraine. It's the biggest story of our time. And we're going to continue to talk to analysts, politicians, fighters, leaders. And we're going to support Ukraine in anywhere we can. We'll keep up that unique and intense focus on national security, military operations, foreign policy, journalism, heroism, to bring you more independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, and stay vigilant. So go to independentamericans.us and please spread the word. You can also get Independent Americans gear and you can support this show by joining our Patreon community. Think about us like NPR or your local public radio. Whatever it is that you support by joining our Patreon community, you help us keep this content coming. You help us tell stories like those from Seth and so many others you've heard on this show. 
So big shout out to our Patreon members. Thank you to all of you for continuing to support this work. If you're a Patreon member, you're going to get an extended conversation with Seth. I go a little bit deeper. I do ask him his favorite drink. I ask him what he misses about America. And I asked him what he read to help prepare him for this time in his life. It's a fascinating extended conversation only for our Patreon members. And please keep spreading the word. Go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. While you're there, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for free and share. It's 100% free. We want to make this content available to anybody, anywhere in the world, including people in Russia who need to hear the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. So give us five stars, subscribe for free, and share. Righteous is going to continue to bring you the five eyes and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And it's coming to you thanks to the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez, and it's thanks to my amazing wife, Lori, and my two boys. We have reason to celebrate. Even in the darkest of times, there is reason to celebrate. First of all, because spring break is here. My kids are off for the next week, and I'm looking forward to spending time with them. But also, because it's the third anniversary of Independent Americans. Three years ago, we started this show with our very first guest, Willie Geist. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. You'll hear about how I accidentally sent him to the Polish embassy instead of the site of our interview. But we started off with Willie Geist, and it's been three years, 165 episodes, and a hell of a ride. So on our third birthday of Independent Americans, my deepest thanks to all of our guests, our fans, our supporters, and especially to my wife and my boys and to the incredible fortitude, focus, and creativity of creative Chris Rosenthal and Bill Schultz. And most of all, my thanks to you for listening. You make this work possible and you've helped us get to this three-year point and you'll help us go forward in the days ahead. So onward and upward, my friends. And happy birthday to all of us. America's still divided, but at Independent Americans, after three years, we are continuing to fight that. Righteous Media is continuing to fight that, to add light, to contrast the heat, especially in these trying times, especially to help us all meet the flood. And if you're among that 42% of Americans who are independent or unaffiliated, this is your show. You know that if you've been here for three years, if you've just joined us, you're about to find out. We invite you all to be a part of the solution. Be sure to check out all our Righteous Media podcasts, including The Firefighters with Rob Sarah. Rob is dropping a new episode this Friday. And check out B-Dorm. They dropped a great episode last week. Subscribe to all of them for free wherever you got this pod. And check out Righteous.us. Keep sharing the hope, people, because hope is the oxygen of democracy here and worldwide, and especially in Ukraine right now, where they continue to manage and meet the flood. And they're doing it with hope and they're continuing to do it with heroes, legends that will define this time in history for the ages. After the turn of the century in the clear blue skies over Germany came a roar and a thunder men have never You've heard me say Slava Ukraini. Well, that's the cry that's now reverberated around the globe. And it's been inspired by the legends, the stories of the fighters that have come out of Kiev. And one of them has been called the Ghost of Kiev. He's Ukraine's fighter pilot ace. Shortly after the Russian invasion began, 
There were unconfirmed rumors all across Ukraine about a mysterious fighter pilot in a MiG-29 gunning down six enemy aircraft in the first hours of the war. He was dubbed the Ghost of Kiev on social media and allegedly has been taking to the skies and reached 21 confirmed Russian kills. If the kills are confirmed, it would make the Ghost of Kiev the first flying ace of the 21st century. And in the episode this week, I'm rocking a very special Ghost of Kiev t-shirt that was made by my friend, a Navy vet and pilot himself, Ward Carroll. And all the proceeds from these shirts are going to be donated to the Return Alive Foundation, which directly supports Ukrainian troops with supplies and training. It's a pretty badass shirt. Check it out in the video or check it out on social media. And you can stand with Ukraine and get your own. Check out punkswar.com or I'll link to it in the show notes and you can get your own Ghost of Kiev t-shirt and support the fight. The Ghost of Kiev invokes the spirit of another legend. There was a guy that they called the Red Baron in World War I. The Red Baron was the notorious German fighter pilot who became the first ace. And this song is about Snoopy versus the Red Baron. Because good will triumph over evil. It may take a while. It may take lots of time and pain and navigating through the flood. But the heroes can guide us through the flood. And heroes like the Ghost of Kiev can inspire the world and inspire children and inspire all of us to better days ahead. The Ghost of Kiev is the hope we need to continue to drive on no matter how high those floodwaters get. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And no, you're not alone in that vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together, especially now. All across America, all across Ukraine, and all around the world, we're all in this together. From the brave people in Ukraine, and especially those in Bucha, to the Azov Battalion, and all of those in Mariupol right now, to the soldiers at Fort Bragg, from Stevie Ray Vaughan, to Snoopy, from Seth Harp, to the Ghost of Kiev to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening again. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini. And stay vigilant, America. Righteous Media.